0: Pacific Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihe Zazan,
1: And I am Miran Abulsim.
2: You know, uh, most of those generals also, they have complacency in the wrongdoing and uh, they are not free of responsibility of shedding blood of our people. So shorter period of time means they are not, not going to be a trial for everybody. And maybe they will sacrifice the head of the regime, you know. But that's not our demand. It's not about vengeance. But in order to uh, correct the wrong and to correct the path forward, we have to establish the rule of law. This week, we bring you the latest dramatic
0: political developments in Sudan with Assad Sheikh, the director of the Global Justice Program at the Haas Institute at UC Berkeley. Later in the program, award-winning multidisciplinary artist and author Niloufar Talebi joins us to talk about her new opera, Abraham in Flames, inspired by the stunning imagery of the late iconic Iranian poet Ahmad Shamlou's Life and Poetry. Stay with us.
1: On May 2nd, three weeks after the ouster of Omar al-Bashir, upward of a million Sudanese protesters joined a sit-in in Khartoum to demand that the ruling military council hands over power to a civilian administration. The call for a mass march came from the Declaration of Freedom and Change Forces, an alliance of activists and opposition groups. After the alliance could not reach an agreement with the military council, on the features of a transitional political structure, such as who would control the joint civilian military body meant to oversee the transition period. To learn more about the recent political developments in Sudan, Shahram Agamir spoke to Al-Sadiq al-Sheikh. He is the director of the Global Justice Program at the Haas Institute for a Fair and Inclusive Society at the University of California, Berkeley, where he oversees the program's projects on global and local food system, global equity, and human rights. He starts by telling us about the negotiations between the opposition and the military council.
2: On Thursday, may second the opposition under the umbrella of freedom and change, including the the people in the ground with the representation of Sudanese professional association, called for uh, this show of force as if you will to demonstrate that they rejecting the delay from the military council the interim military council respecting and, and, and responding to their specific demands and that's basically circle around issues of uh, who will lead the transition period in Sudan. You know, the opposition insisted on has to be a civilian ruled, civilian control government rather than the leadership of the military council. But at the same time, we know that the military council as many in opposition dubbed it as bland uh, B of the regime that tried to circumvent all the aspiration of the Sudanese people and to delay the revolutionary change that might carry on with this radical program of our opposition. In that sense, we, we see that there is two kinds of camps colliding. One is the uh, interim military Council with the support of the DB state in Sudan with the, from the following regime and with a very close association with international and regional power, including in particular Egypt, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, and most likely behind them, the silence of the American administration as well. And here I don't spare also the European Union. On the other hand, we have the power of the Sudanese people with the leadership that they trusted the Sudanese professional association and the forces who came under the Declaration of Freedom and Change, which uh, have representation of youth movement, women movement, uh, political parties that have been absent for the last three decades, many other associations. So it seems there is very clear two camps, camps that work toward this intifada or popular uprising to achieve very particular programs, and another representing the DB state that try to hold this transition into a different kind of path.
3: Before we get into talking more details about these two camps, why don't you give us a quick summary of how we got to where we are today. How did the protests start in December and evolve? And what were some of the watershed moments
2: You know, this is a really very interesting question. I I would like to take your listener even further back than December. The beginning of this current revolt started in 2013. But the regime of Omar al-Bashir cracked very bloody and violently against the protesters. And in that particular time, in the spring of 2013, the Sudanese professional association emerged as the organizer for this movement to be known later on and nobody know about them at the moment and they have to work underground so they went with ups and downs due to the regime crack on them 2013 and and they moved on and they reached reach uh, the peak in 2018 in december and it seems at that moment that's the end and they could see the light at the end of the tunnel so with the massive uh, reorganizing and organizing and reaching out to the Sudanese in every uh, corner of the state, uh, this time they use the, the most sophisticated organizing tool is to organize actually the periphery rather than the center. And, and I'm sure you know that. The fairest city to revolt is the city of Adbara, which is in the northeast Sudan, which is very well known for the Sudanese people. We call it the city, uh, Medina Tal Hadid, that, the city of uh, fire and steel. And the reason they say that, because it's the headquarters of the worker of railways, and they are very well known for their progressive outlook to the issues of the state. So the first revolt in December actually emerged from there. And it spread out through different other cities, 26 cities before it arrived to the capital city of Khartoum. And from there, became almost impossible for the regime to, to contain this massive revolt. Everybody in the revolt organized under that umbrella? No. But most people, they see that they can trust this new generation of leaders because it seems they are emerging from them. They know their issues and they speak speak with one voice, and they utilize all tools that are available to them, including social media. They're reaching out people in and outside. And, and I remember that I'm um, here in Berkeley, receiving all this uh, specific demand, like, hey, you need to talk to the international community. And this is our talking point, how these people get to know us. I mean, that shows the level of sophistication. And they've been prepared and w- very well organized including many youth movements like Grifna and others. But there are many of them. So all of them kind of put their hand together in order to present a, a very large segment of the Sudanese society. The news outlets have mostly reported that the military
3: rulers and the Alliance for Freedom and Change have agreed on a joint civilian military council to rule Sudan until the elections are held. But the two seem to be at loggerheads over the composition of the council. What are the real bones of contention? The makeup of the council seems to be important, but not the only issue. Can you talk about these bones of contention?
2: So uh, the the root of this collision, if you will, between these two large camps, that most people in opposition on the ground, the people who are leading the revolt again is the former the regime, when they arrived in April 6th to the barricade, at the headquarters of the armed forces, their demand was: We need our army, the people's army, to protect the revolution. Why that they were demand? Because they know that the only forces capable, in reality. To stop any bloodshed against them will be the armed force. But they've been also very aware that the high-ranking generals, they are all of them co-opted and corrupted by the regime in the last 30 years. So they didn't have an illusion who actually heading the the army. But their their call was toward the mid-ranking and lower soldiers that they have felt the same burn against this regime for three decades. And then the leadership of the army being forced under the pressure, since they know that if al-Bashir gets ousted, it, it might be have a catastrophic consequences on them, particularly. So they decided to join solidarity with the Sudanese people and to take over as an internal coup against al-Bashir, but to also uh, to circumvent the, the people's aspiration. So now they didn't know that in reality that actually the opposition have a very clear plan of 10 point program. And most of us, we know that, except, I guess, uh, the deposited regime and their generals. So one of the major demands is the extension of the transition period and who lead the transition period. So that's, I think, the two issues that really stood between the two camps, if you will, the military council and opposition, the status quo versus change. It's exactly that because the whole idea in opposition and the movement led by youth and organized professionals, their demand was: we have to dismantle the regime from its own roots, the deep state in particular. Because changing generals or names or substituting al- Bashir with somebody else is actually is not about any change. That's a transactional change. The call was for deep transformational change. In order to do that, you have to uproot the DB state. And the DB state, if you imagine 30 years entrenched deeply within the civil services, within all the institutions of the state, from the judiciary, from civil services, education and what have you. So they've been very aware of that. And I think that was and it still is the problem. So the military council came with a different formula is that we're gonna have they will be the leader of this transitional period for two years. And that was the big no when the opposition decided they will do the sittings since April 6. And the sitting demand we are not gonna move from here till we you transfer the power to civilian roles.
3: And, and we should be clear that the sitting was pivotal in terms of making sure that Bashir was outstead from power.
2: Very true, very yeah. true. But all the concern was in any autocratic regime and dictatorships. The head of the state is not only the goal for the people who are revolting, it is actually the whole in- the regime itself because we have the security apparatus, we have the financial clandestine of the, of the regime entrenched controlling the whole entire landscape of any economic activities. So, in reality, even if you get the power, what you will do with it? You don't have the means in order to move forward. And in this particular conjunction, I think the Sudanese opposition with this young leadership, they really show sophistication and understanding. On the one hand, they didn't want to direct radical eruption with those generals because that could lead to bloodshed which is another thing that they've been worried about it, with the example around us in the region. On the other hand, they don't want to about the demand and the fear tactic that the military council use, that we are here to protect the security of our people and our borders. So how you negotiate that in a moment that everything moving so fast and also like I, I stated earlier, that also you have non-friendly power in the region that they want to make sure that there is no change, real change happening in Sudan because that will threaten their regimes as well.
3: Sure, we'll we'll talk about that. I think that's an important factor to point out. Just to be clear, the opposition is also asking for a transition time of four years into a legitimate election, if you like, while the military is asking for a shorter time. Can you talk about why that aspect is so important?
2: Definitely. For the opposition and for the military council, this was a second hardest point to reach an agreement around. The two options was very obvious, Will tells you whether that body will come to rule the country in the transition period whether their intention is to do deep change in the society and the state or actually to keep the status quo. So if you imagine 30 years of autocracy and dictatorship rules, how is possible you will clear up the house and prepare for fair and free elections? That's almost an impossible task for any government to do. The second thing... The military council want to make sure that the symbols and the leadership of the National Congress Party, the ruling party, the Islamist party, that they not to be subjected to trial. And my deep belief that that's one of the deal that Omar al-Bashir struck with Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates and CC uh, of Egypt is he will step down from power, but there's no trial. And it seems from a different type of leaks that uh, we've been seeing in the last month or so that even Western government is in cahoots with this plan. So there is kind of guarantee if you step down, there is no ICC and there is kind of safety for your own personnel. So the position was demanding we need four years to clear up the house, to prepare the country to write a new constitution, to establish rule of law, to establish our national institution to rebuild, you know, the structure of the army and intelligence service and the police because those also the tools of oppression in Sudan. So they are very aware of that. You can't keep the old regime and it is intact and you try to do any democratic change. And it seems this is one of the if you will, the ignorance of the western corridors of power that they just seek an election how we will do an election in a society that every aspect of the freedom of choice, freedom of thoughts, been absent and cracked down on it for three decades. Most of the people who protested in the street, they born within this regime.
3: Generally speaking, a shorter period of time would allow the forces of the Ancien Regime, the forces of a status quo to prevail in an election because, as you mentioned, the political space had been confined and it has not allowed the opposition forces to revive the political sphere and be able to organize and mobilize to get their message out. So that usually helps the people who have been in power. And I think that's uh, Mm -hmm. an important point to point out.
2: And it's also to add to that, they want to make sure that, you know, uh, most of those generals also, they have complacency in the wrongdoing and uh, they are not free of uh, responsibility of shedding blood of our people. So shorter period of time means there's not not going to be a trial for everybody. And maybe they will sacrifice the head of the regime, you know. But that's not our demand. It's not about vengeance. But in order to correct the wrong and to correct the path forward, we have to establish the rule of law. And in order to do that, you need a longer period of time to trial every single person. In the last 30 years, that actually harm our people, harm our economy, our natural world. Sudan being subjugated to unfair aspect of, let's say, international or regional trade, for example, a lot of our arable lands being sold or leased for a neighboring country for uh, really penny and dimes. So who's responsible? How you can revise this in two years? You, you can not actually even go below the surface level. So the people in opposition, they want to make sure that before they hand it over to political parties, they want to make sure that they clear up the house, they set the stage clear the way forward. In particular, for example, there is another issue, the relationship between religion and state. It's very obvious from the opposition, especially the youth movement, that they won't break away from this. They want to establish a republic based on equal citizenship status rather than religiosity and everybody equal regardless of their race, gender, sexuality and origin. And that's very profound. And most of us in our opposition, because I consider myself part of this young movement because we grew up during this regime, that this is our liberation movement. It's not 1956 when we gain our independence because we never completed our delinking with the colonial mindset that ruled our country for such a long period of time.
3: That is interesting. If Sudan's uprising succeeds in accomplishing its objectives, it would be the first time that you actually have a regime with an Islamist agenda that is being toppled by the masses. Time There have been Islamist movements that have been crushed or defeated, but this would be actually the first time that they're in power. And so this epitomizes a new era for the entire region.
2: Exactly true and that's one of the the misconception about the Sudanese intifada or Sudanese revolt popular revolt. This is Sudan is the only Arab Islamic country that actually ruled by political Islam in particularly a branch of the Muslim Brotherhood and the uh, religiosity in Sudan being entrenched in order to allow the dictatorship to survive because most of the population are you know adhered to that uh, faith or 70 percent prior to the breakup of the South are now almost 99%. We don't have uh, specific stats on that. However, people are very aware. Yes, we can add her to the same faith, but we don't want the religion to rule our time on earth. And we have to make sure that to correct the path. So in this sense, it's really the Sudanese experience is totally different than the other Arab Spring. And we are more or less close to the African experience in that sense, because it's about correcting the path post-colonial time. And that's what a lot of our neighboring country and observers and even in the West, they keep missing the point. This is different. This is not about a group being oppressed, hijacked the bar for 30 years. Muslim Brotherhood never been oppressed in the history of Sudan. It never. They never been jailed. It's yelled for political gain by their own people. They could have a struggle over power and subjugate their old friends and allies to uh, bad treatment, maltreatment and imprisonment. But in reality, they always enjoyed a sort of freedom within both independent Sudan. So and this is, will be a complete breakaway with the whole idea of, of the Arab Spring kind of, of revolt that we witnessed in the last decade. So it's different in the sense that people are looking for uprooting the whole entire colonial apparatus, that even though the colonial power left but the, the coloniality is still reside in our relationship with the metropolitan, how we conduct our state, how we build our institution, how we design our educational system, despite that we uh, not necessarily calling for eruption with the rest of the world. That's not true. Actually, we want to have a good relationship with the rest of the world, but based on our sovereign decision-making and how we want to rule our country. And that's fundamentally uh, grounded in the deep democratic process. If I may add to that, in terms of uh, relationship to
3: the uh, major powers of the world, Omar al-Bashir's regime was not exactly a, a client state of the United States. That's a debatable one. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, wasn't, uh, it, was, it has had, shall we say, a tumultuous relationship in the past, right? It doesn't quite resemble like a, a Mubarak regime in Egypt. Or even Tunisian regime. So in a way, in the fact that there is an Islamist regime in power in Sudan and this is a regime that is not it wasn't entirely in the camp of the United States, if you like. in a way, it it resembles, if if I may say so, the protest movements in Iran, that they are against a regime which is, Technically, they have their own rivalries with the United States and its allies. Uh, What do you think of that comparison? Do you think it's...
2: In some aspect, it might be true, but I will take it a step further to say that, uh, you know, Sudan, like any other part of the world, is is complicated, right? And we are people with history, despite colonial narratives that depicted those places, you know, those places have no history or no sophistications. So... The regime of al-Bashir, I always, when people ask me, I said that it's extremely pragmatic and clever regime for the most part. Being able to manipulate its international relation, it depends about the situation that requires their survival. It's a survival regime, so it being able to survive for three decades despite both 9-11 war... This regime should be toppled, for example, if you look at the, you know, composition of power. But how survive? It survived because it makes sure that to bow down to all the demand of the American administration. So the Sudanese regime actually was very well known for collecting human intelligence during the war in Iraq. The Sudanese regime, the first regime engaged in a war in terror in sub-Saharan Africa allow the CIA to build the most massive office in sub-Saharan Africa. So in that sense, Al-Bashir will come and deliver a political speech, anti-colonial and all that. And, you know, we are anti-Russia and the U.S., what have you. But at the same time, plays the same game, being able to manipulate that. And they kept a very weird relationship. So in the first half, they've been very close to Iran. Till they've been pushed to depart from that camp. Sure. So they joined the camp of Qatar. And after that, they've been pushed to join the camp of Saudi Arabia. So if you see, that's a survival regime. But they couldn't change their skin for the first time. It was it. Because I, I don't think the Saudi-Emirati-Egyptian coalition have any liking in the region. Despite their cracking down on their opposition, they rolling with iron fist, but that's not the people of Egypt or even in Saudi Arabia or in inside the United Arab Emirates. Uh, nobody agrees. And one of the demands of the opposition said that when we transition the power to a civilian rule, we need to restructure the armed force. And the reason behind that is to pull out our troops from Yemen. And that is a big no-no from the new emerging coalition of Saudi-Emirati Egyptians. So... That's a very, very revolutionary thinking, but they didn't put it on the top of their demand because you just can't put all your card, especially the wild one, in the table and to negotiate. So the idea is, if you look at it with that complexity, yes, indeed, the regime when the first 10 years was kind of anti-imperialist in terms of uh, rhetoric, but in reality, it just cracked down in every single space of freedom inside the country. And that's not weird in the authoritarian regimes. I mean,
3: exactly. They do have this facade of when it comes to outside powers, they use this anti-imperialist rhetoric in order to rally their forces and have that sort of populist rhetoric, if you like, you know, that appeals to people. But even more importantly, they implement a new liberal capitalist program when it comes to the economy, both in Iran and Sudan. Whether they are in agreement officially with IMF or not, but in practice, they do implement those programs. Sudanese Professional Association, SBA, as you mentioned, is a major force in Alliance for Freedom and Change and a key actor in mobilizing the protests that led to the ouster of Omar al-Bashir after 30 years of his rule on April 11. In a press conference on April 30th, an SPA spokesperson said that the um, military council is not serious about handing over power to civilians. SBA seems to be calling for more street actions and work stoppages. While the military is concerned about opening the roads and bridges blocked by demonstrators, the military council has warned that it would not allow chaos and has asked the protesters to open these roads and bridges. The two sides have quite diverging views, as you mentioned. One is trying to... One is vying for order and normalcy, if you like, uh, while the other one is pushing for meaningful transformation through grassroots action. What means this movement for change has at its disposal to bring about these changes?
2: No, definitely bringing a very important point. I think this is one of the things that's very close to every single Sudanese I understand when we talk about civil disobedience. Just for the sake of your listeners, the Sudanese opposition tried this so many times. And in the two times they tried that, they've been successful to uproot a dictator regime. And this is the wild card, they call it in Sudan, is complete civil disobedience, paralyze the state. So when the military council said, we are not going to accept, you know, kind of uh, this people taking the law in their hands and chaos and all that, the response from the street was, if you clean the DB state, we will clean the street.
3: And just on that, they have uh, pushed
2: for some of these generals to step down. Three of them just resigned. Very true. And, so. and and that's we showed you that that even the general in the inter Council, they understand that they don't have the legitimacy. They don't have the heart of and the mind of the people. They know they are really vulnerable. They're only there because of the fear tactic that they use that, uh, especially vis-a-vis the international relations that we want to protect Sudan not to descend it into chaos like Libya and, and, and Syria. But they forget one of the most important piece, what the Sudanese people in the street, they are masters of civil disobedience. And they said, if you try to crack down, we're going to call for civil disobedience. And civil disobedience will bring any regime down. So for me, I think that shows the maturity, even though they are young people, maturity of SBA and uh, forces of uh, freedom and change, how they actually strategizing and organizing their next step, like how they will respond to uh, demand from the military council. And they know that they have the, if you will, the revolutionary legitimacy from the street, while the Military Council does not have any legitimacy. And in reality, General Burhan, the president of the Military Council, is a lot of people within the SPA that we want to trial him as well. But we could accept the reality that to move not into victor justice, into survival justice, that we, we, we can overcome some of the wrongdoings, but they cannot be the one who will decide the future of the state. So the sit it was the last step before the complete civil disobedience. And they declare, if there is crackdown, they call for the Sudanese people to do civil disobedience in the whole entire country. So imagine from blocking several roads, now you will have nothing moving. Well, it seems like this is such a clever
3: move in terms of Identifying the urban space or routes that have to be blocked in order to bring stalemate to everything, or make the most disruption to the regime, and that's very
2: interesting. Activities. When you look versus the Arab Spring, for example, using Medina Tahrir Tahrir Square or Habib Bourguiba Avenue in Tunisia, the Sudanese b will use the headquarters of the army to show strength, and that's completely flipping the whole idea of the urban public space. Who have the space? And when they call for the army, they have a two names for them the military, intramilitary council with representation of generals, or the people's army. So they're calling in the people's army to protect the revolution and denouncing the leadership of the military council. So that's another sophistication in, I think, the Sudanese social movement, that building up a generation of understanding the landscape and the difficulties of navigating transition. As you know, you are very aware that transition is not an easy thing. So you can't achieve your goal within a month or a week or six months. It's very hard while you try to decide and to keep all the lines open with opposition, different political parties. And the military council suggested that in Sudan, currently there is 107 political parties. So imagine if that's true, or yes, even is, uh, one quarter of it is true, which I think that's a lot of voices to incorporate and coordinate and you respond the next day to the military council. But this sophistication of uh, SPA, the Sudanese Professional Association, being capable of dealing with all this, uh, coordination, high level of coordination and deliver their demand and insisted on it. And the Military Council always felt that they are under pressure. So they want to get legitimacy from negotiating with the SPA. So SPA has been able to recraft, redesign the public space as a space for protest, a space for crafting the new demand. So this morning, uh, on Thursday, May 2nd, they delivered the constitutional memo to the interim military Council. And there is very specific points. And when I read through, it was like the most clever point. Now, they tell the Military Council that what exactly they want to do, and that's actually their actual demands. And one of them is they cannot be the leader of the interim, supreme, what they call it, a sovereign council. But they suggested to them they could be definitely part of it. And any decision on that Supreme Council has to be with the majority of two-thirds. So this is another genius way of thinking, okay, I'm not going to exclude you, but you cannot make any actual decision. And they insisted that the ultimate decision will rest in the civilian government that will be appointed from freedom and change forces. So we'll include all political parties and all the technocrats that have ultimate quality of Resilience and Resolute, and they have a clean record of actually moving our country to the next stage. And they decided also, the third demand, that they create a legislative party that will include at least 40% of women and youth. That's, that's another very specific demand of changing mm-hmm. the nature and the future of the Sudanese state.
3: This council would actually oversee... Another body, it would be like executive power, exactly day to day administrative. And meanwhile, they're working on a new constitution,
2: exactly. And also, will oversize the independence of the judiciary. So, they want to make sure that the judiciary is actually independent, and a whole entire running the state and supervising the government will come from the legislative council, while the supreme sovereign council that includes the generals, it will be a symbolic head of a state.
3: But the argument of protesters and the movement for change is that the council should be dominated by civilians, even though it could have certain members of the military.
2: Yeah, very true. Yeah. And I think that's one of the good tactical way in which to move forward from this kind of deadlock. I was impressed
3: by one of the slogans during this protest, Adala, justice. So I think justice has many different layers, if you like, and one of them has to do with the as you mentioned, with the past actions of the people who are currently still in Sudan. And, you know, Mm -hmm. one way or the other, maybe they are still ruling. What are the forces that comprise Alliance for Freedom and Change? Are there tensions within this bloc between some of the traditional parties, if you like, and the grassroots forces, a tension between formal politics and street politics? For instance, in an interview on May 1st, Sadiq al-Mahdi, the leader of Ummah Party, and this is one of the traditional parties, he cautioned protest leaders against provoking the military.
2: True. Sadig al-Mahadi is uh, the last elected prime minister that deposited by the regime of Omar Bashir. Even though he have that legitimacy, but he completely have no whatsoever power in our social, political, and economic revolts that are taking place in Sudan right now. So the composition of the forces of freedom and change are really wide in a spectra, from far left in the Communist Party to the right wing of a uh, Babel Congress Party, which is split from the, the Islamist movement. So imagine that kind of a spectra. And, and
3: that was the ruling party?
2: National Congress national party. party. Uh, so when they split in 1999, the ideologue Hassan Trabi been excluded from the movement, and he went and created the People's Congress kind of like in reaction to the National Congress. But in this kind of formation and the composition of of the political alliance within Freedom and Change Declaration, the SPA makes sure that to include everybody, including movement that carrying arms and they engaging in armed struggle. So they have like three of them included within this movement also youth and women and all other associations uh, that existed. So the idea is to show for that we have the people of Sudan representation under this umbrella. On the other hand, you only have illegitimate military council that is plan B of the regime. So now the the military council also with the DB said, is not unsophisticated. It's also smart. So they tried so hard to credit which between the forces of freedom and change by trying to negotiate with some part, not the other part, including some fraction from Sadiq al mahdis Umba Party. But that also doesn't bear fruits because people start to use social media and say that we have no representation except SPA and freedom and change leadership. So it's very clear that people are very aware of the delicacy of the moment and how it's it's very dangerous. But at the same time, we understand that we are not naive to say that all the opposition speak with one mind and have one ideology. But at least we have the minimum that we agree on it, that we want a deep democratic state. We want to uproot the deep state of the last 30 years. In order to do that, we can now have a differences in the way in which we can do that. But the SBA have very clear mandate from people in the ground because it's people, democracy, and if you will, politics of the street that's been elevated to the higher stage. And I think that shows also sophistication and respect for our people and their demand.
0: Sadir al-Sheikh is the director of the Global Justice Program at the Haas Institute for a Fair and Inclusive Society at the University of California, Berkeley. He spoke with Shahram Olamir. To listen to the full interview, visit iTunes, where you can also subscribe to our program and share it with others. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.
4: (laughs) كفنا الشهيد مقطوعة سبحه من حبال المشنقة المرفوعة <تصفيق> جلبت من كفن الشهيد مقطوعة. صحت عضل من مرض صحه عضل من مرض اليتامى من
0: Award-winning multidisciplinary artist and author Niloufar Talebi has created a new opera inspired by the iconic Iranian poet Ahmad Shamlu's poetry. The name of the opera, Abraham in Flames, is borrowed from the title of Shamlou's 1974 book of poems. She says one of the reasons she embarked on the project was to introduce Shamlou's rich body of work to new audiences through projects inspired by him.
5: The title of Abraham in Flames is taken from the iconic Iranian poet Ahmad Shamlou's 1974 seminal book of poems by that same name, Ibrahim Dar Atash in the Persian, which translates into Abraham in Flames. And that story, that metaphor is taken from the biblical story of young Abraham who broke the idols in his family's store, and then was questioned by uh, the king of Babylon, Nimrod, as to why he doesn't believe in the idols and Abraham said that those idols are false and that the only God is the one true God. Uh, The king of Babylon uh, condemned him to burn in a fire and Abraham was thrown into the fire and asked of nothing and instead of burning He sat in the fire, and only his chains burned, and he walked out of the fire, face illuminated like gold. This is a universal metaphor for believing in one's truth and standing up for it. So Shamlu used this metaphor to write a book of poems to people like Che Guevara and many other freedom fighters, uh, Iranian and international, who stand against despots and give their lives up for standing up for their truths. So our opera is taken from that metaphor. Mm.
0: Ahmad Luit is one of the greatest cultural figures of the 20th century in Iran and arguably one of the most influential in the world. But not much is known about this important cultural figure. In the West, he was a great translator. His life was also devoted to struggles for social justice. He translated the works of great poets like Pablo Neruda, Garcia Lorca, Nazem Hekmat. Tell us about his work and what drew you to his poetry.
5: Ahmad Shamlu was born in 1925 and he died in the year 2000. He basically is known... um, um, he's a poet, translator, as you said, encyclopedist, cultural critic, essayist, on and on and on. Um, one of his major contributions was to draw from the aesthetics and different uh, artistic movements uh, internationally to foment a revolution in Iranian poetics. And what that meant was that he continued the work that his predecessor had begun, Nima Yushij. In the beginning part of the 20th century, to break with the rhyming schemes and formal patterns of classical Persian poetry in order to create a modernist voice for Iranian poetics. Ahmad Shamlu took that task and that vision all the way to free verse and broke with all tradition. What drew me to his poetry is that I had the great fortune that he attended my parents' home when I was a teenager in Tehran. After the revolution, and I got to know him personally and and watch his magic and his personality and his charisma and his work firsthand and be the recipient of many gifts of book and music and other works of international art uh, from him personally. So he's somebody who has shaped not only an entire culture, but also my own life personally. About seven years ago I had the vision to do a book and an opera inspired by his very cinematic and dramatic life. And his staggering poetry and so now seven years later we have a book which is called self portraits in bloom uh, which is a hybrid nonfiction that I wrote that contains an entire book of translations of his poetry by myself in it as well as a portrait of his life and work and then the opera is as we mentioned called Abraham in flames and that's coming up in a few weeks Why did you
0: decide to pick this specific poem for your opera?
5: The notion of believing in, in our truths and standing up for it has always resonated with me as an immigrant, as an artist, as a woman. And it's also resonated with my collaborators, the composer Alexandra Vribalov, who is the composer of the opera, as well as my other collaborator, the dramaturg and director Roy Rallo. The three of us are creating the opera together. There were also a lot of obstacles that I personally had to overcome in the seven-year journey to to do the translations. And to write the book and to create the opera I'm not only creating the opera But I'm also commissioning and presenting it Which Mm -hmm. is a gargantuan task Uh, It's been a full-time task for the last seven years And I wanted to just relate this notion. I wanted to sort of distill all stories into its core, which is the truth, the truth uh, versus fear, fear of the truth. So really, the story is very shamanistic and Mm. it's very epic and very much like a very basic fairy tale that tells the, the story through a young woman's chorus. Who is cast as the lead character of an opera. And this is unusual as well. This yeah. is the way we've broken with tradition. So, and then the five soloists around them represent the angel and poet and other characters, internal aspects of us that taunt this young woman's chorus, these 41 singers, and to, you know, find their truth, believe in it or not believe in it, give it up or not give it up and the you know the rest of that shall be seen when you see the opera but that that's always resonated as a fundamental question another thing that resonated that went into the story of the opera is an uh is an anecdote about uh how shamlu and his wife ida came to buy the last home that they owned in the outskirts of tehran in the village Karaj. the story goes as ida recounts it that They saw this home, they saw this great big evergreen tree in its front yard, and they fell in love with it, and they bought the home for the sake of the tree. Hmm. Fast forward several years, one night there's a very loud noise in the middle of the night, and in the morning they discover that the tree has been shattered by lightning. And when Shamlu sees this scene, he famously says, Ida... The tree is gone and I am going to die too. And then he dies shortly thereafter. So this sort of really resonated with me as the tree, as a figure, a symbol of something otherworldly that we believe in. The image of Abraham walking through fire literally all came together with this very, very big question that I really delve into in my book that my father asked me at the time I knew Shamlu. I was a young girl and he asked me this very big question. which which has become the main question of the opera that starts the opera and sets these young women on their journey, on their hero's journey to find and insist on their truths and what that takes. The opera is immersive, so the singers and the viewers are all together on one level on the floor, and there are about 55 performers in this work, and it's just a very, very intense 70-minute one-act musical and theatrical and performative experience that happens without any intermission. It's going to be very special (laughs) and again, as I said, it's very shamanistic the way we've uh, imagined it and we're creating it. after about a year or two after I began the process of laying down the idea for a a project, an an opera project, I was met with an act of vicious sabotage that I write about in the book that really halted my project of translating Shamu's work and, and incorporating those translations into the libretto and the story of the opera. And that act of violence, really, that act of silencing really halted me and affected my health and really destroyed me for about a year. Once I was able to sort of come back to life from, you know, what seems like the edge of death, I resumed work and I knew that I was even more resolved than ever to bring this, as you mentioned, iconic poet who is not well known in the West, but who is a world class cultural figure, not only to the Persian people and the Persian culture, but on the world stage, I wanted to bring him in many different formats in translation, you know, within a literary framework, which is a book, as well as with performative and multimedia projects to the attention of Western readers and viewers. And as a result of doing these projects, I mean, I usually do a literary project in conjunction with a performative project. I've been doing this sort of pairing for, I don't know, the past 20 years or so with um, each of my books. So as a result of doing an opera, you know, not only do I bring this work to my collaborators who are all Western, and by the way, 95% women, I have a team of women working on this project, but also to their audiences and to their friends and families. So the vision of bringing his work and all the works that I translate, you know, in a larger framework, which is a cultural translation, is being realized, but at great, great cost to me personally. But what makes me happy is that my collaborators, you know, Renee Rapier, who sings the poet character, or American soprano Renee Rapier, she's learning about Shamlu's work. And I've, you know, just yesterday read her the four or five poems from which The libretto has been reimagined and remixed and reintegrated in, you know, the imagery in the opera. And she was moved. You know, we're all moved to tears from the works of, of Ahmad Shamlu and his incredible legacy. And I'm so, so proud to be able to bring his work and his legacy to the attention of a much, much larger public as he so deserves.
0: And what do you want people to come away with after seeing this opera?
5: That all of us share so much, that there is a unity in in our humanity, which is exactly what Shamlo believed in as well, that his works in translation and in multiple translations, even by other translators, hopefully in the future, should be read as the works of Neruda are, that breaking with, with tradition and creating new operas with new models is a possibility, that, you know, taking on the creation of an opera as one person with a very small and incredible, incredibly hard-working team is a possibility and that we want to come out of this cultural invisibility. You know, the works of Iranian literature, literary figures is scarcely available in translation, mm-hmm. but this invisibility, there's a reason for it and there are ways to combat it and to bring our forces together and to share our shared human culture together across borders and across languages.
0: Uh, Nilufar, let's finish our conversation with a poem from Shamlu. Can you read one of your own favorites?
5: You huh, I have so many favorite ones. I can read Collective Love, the translation of Ishqa Umumi. Tears are a mystery, smiles a mystery, love a mystery. The tears of that night were the smile of my love. I am not a tale to be told. Not a song to be sung, not a sound to be heard, or something that you can see, or something that you can know. I am common pain, cry me out. The tree speaks with the woods, the weed with the fields, the stars with the galaxy, And I speak with you, tell me your name, give me your hand, speak me your words, give me your heart. I have discovered your depths and spoken for all through your lips, and your hands are familiar with mine. I have wept in blazing solitude with you for the sake of the living and have sung the most beautiful of songs in the darkest of graveyards for the dead of this year were the most loving of the living. Give me your hand, your hands know me, oh, you found at last I speak with you as the cloud with the storm, the weed with the fields, the rain with the sea, the bird with spring, and the tree that speaks with the woods. For I have discovered your depths, for my voice is intimate with yours.
4: عشق رازیست، لبخند رازیست، عشق رازیست عشق آن شب لبخنده عشقم بود قصه نیستم که بگویی، نقمه نیستم که بخوانی، صدا نیستم که بشنوی یا چیزی چنون که ببینی، یا چیزی چنون که بدانی من درد مشترکم مرا فریاد کن درخت با جنگل سخن میگوید علف با صحرا ستاره با کهکشان و من با تو سخن میگوید نامت را به من بگو دست را به من بده حرفت را به من بگو غلبت را به من بده من ریشه های تو را در یافت هم. با برای همه لبها سخن گفتم، ام و دست هایت با دستان من آشناست در خلوت روشن با تو گریستم برای خاطر زندگان و در گورستان تاریک با تو خنده ام زیباترین سرودها را زیرا که مردگان این سال آشقترین زندگان بودم دستت را به من بده دست های تو با من آشناست ای دیریافت با تو سخن میگویم besan abr ke ba toofan besan alf ke ba sahra besan baran ke ba darya besan parande ke ba bahar besan darakht ke ba jangal sokhan miguyad zira ke man rishahaye to ra is an
1: award-winning translator, multidisciplinary artist, author and producer. Her latest book is called Self-Portrayed in Bloom. Abraham in Flames will have its world premiere on May 9th through May 12th at San Francisco's ZSpace. For more information, please visit zspace.org.
2: That's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley.
0: Mira Nabulsi is our senior producer, our media partner, is a Status Hour podcast, and Jadalia Ezin. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at vominoradio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa and thank you for listening.